chapter 8. It's good to see you. I hope you had a wonderful uh, Easter time with your family. We had a wonderful week here last week. Uh, we had almost 500 children and families here on Saturday for the Easter egg hunt. And a lot of uh, follow-up to do and just a lot of people that we're communicating with. Pray for us this week. We, we have an opportunity to begin a public school ministry outreach right on the campus of a public school uh, on Thursday afternoon. We've got a team of people going and we're partnering with a nonprofit, and we have a chance to see kids trust Christ and follow up. I hope you'll pray with us about that as we begin to minister in a greater way to uh, the families of our Arlington community. <clears throat> Uh, most of Jesus' ministry, as we know, the, 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 the recorded ministry where he does most of his miracles, most of his teaching, was in an area that is called Galilee. Now that, as we've talked about, is a, a, an area in northern Israel. Uh, that's the area of Galilee. It's called Galilee because it is near the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee empties out into the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs south to the Dead Sea, which is in southern Israel in the more Judean area of Israel. There were a few moments, however, and, and ultimately Christ would die in Jerusalem, but there were at least three trips to Jerusalem. That's when most people date the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry in three years based upon his three trips to Jerusalem surrounding the, the festivals that he would go and celebrate. So for the next few weeks, Jesus is, has left Galilee, and Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem again. And so we're going to turn to John's gospel for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking right here in the center of John's gospel. John uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11 will take uh, several of the next weeks of our, of our sermon series in some of the most memorable and exciting encounters of the Lord Jesus. Maybe no more notorious chapter in the Bible, no more uh, quoted and misquoted chapter of the Bible, and frankly, no more encouraging chapter of the Bible than John chapter number 8. And so, let's see this encounter by Jesus when he enters into Jerusalem here in John 8, beginning at verse number 1. <clears throat> and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set, set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now... Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them... Who is without sin among you? Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Watch this now. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Amen. This is God's word. I would like to preach to you this morning on this subject. My hope is Jesus. And so is yours. You know, every week seems to be filled with all kinds of bad news. You think about inflation, just to start. I drove Angie through McDonald's yesterday morning. She said, Brian, they've taken the $1 menu and turned it into the $2 menu. And you look at gas, you look at other political and international crises, and then just crazy things. Just this morning, I just did it again just to, just to double check and make sure I wasn't losing my mind that sure enough there would be bad news on Fox News this morning, and there was. There was a husband in North Carolina that shot his wife, shot his four-year-old daughter, shot his eight-month-old son, and then lit their house on fire and burned it to the ground. Killed himself. Crazy. And then just this week in Florida, there was a dentist in South Florida that was arrested for a four-year-old murder of a FSU Uh, I believe it was FSU uh, law professor. He hired someone to kill the man because the man had left his sister. And just a bizarre twist and turn, a a doctor, 45 years old, just, just one year older than me, is now going to go to jail for the rest of his life. It's just crazy. Rarely do you find good news. Just a few years back, there was a heartwarming, hope filled story that took place here in Marion County where a Nicole Crowell pulled over on the side of the road looking in the rearview mirror seeing that her three-month-old son Kingston was unresponsive. She pulled over and began to try to help him only finding that he wasn't breathing, wasn't responsive. And she literally goes out, traffic cam footage shows her going out and flagging down a police officer. And she did happen to flag down Deputy Nix who stopped and after several life-saving measures knew that he could not save the child on the side of the road. So he grabbed the baby jumped in this police car and rushed to Ocala Regional Medical Center where just a few moments later, the medical personnel were able to treat the child, bring him back to breathing, and he was expected to make a full recovery. The doctor said if it were not for Deputy Nick's actions, baby Kingston would certainly have been dead. The mother later said, rightly, the officer is a hero. I want the world to know that he is an amazing man and he's a hero in my book, whether anybody else believes it or not. And I cannot wait for Kingston to get old enough to tell the story to him so that he will realize what a hero he is as well. You like those stories, don't you? Great stories. A hopeless child on the verge of death rescued by a willing hero who is able to do something about it. As I thought about this story yet again this morning, I thought to myself, really, that's actually my story. Uh, My story is a hopeless man on the verge of spiritual death and needing of a life-giving resurrection that could only be offered by the one and only person who could give me a life-giving resurrection. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, we see it 
perhaps accentuated in one of the most dramatic fashions. A woman, a rough woman, in a bad place, in a a, a bad uh, 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 spiritual standing with God, comes condemned by the religious elite, not welcome at church, not welcome by family, family and friends, looked down upon, a castaway, cast aside. And when everybody in the world was running out on her and when everybody else that was left over in the world was condemning her, Jesus came and rescued her. Alistair Begg said this text reveals for us the depth into which men and women can go into sin and the depth into which God in his mercy will reach them. And I say to you this morning that this is all of our stories. There's not a person in this room that is not a sinner against God, separated from God because of your sin. And there's no length to which you will not go and no depth into which you will not go to live out that sinful life that you have chosen to live against God. We've all been there. And yet what we find is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, I've got good news for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is your hope, and the Lord Jesus Christ rescues sinners. I want you to notice a few things about our story here. First of all, I want you to see the accusation that she faced. In verses 1 through 6, the woman is accused. She's of a very serious crime to the Jewish law and certainly a very serious sin against God. To make matters worse, not only was she accused, evidently she was rightly accused. For they said this woman was caught in the act of adultery and then when the Pharisees come back to Jesus again, they say she was caught, watch this, in the very act. So there was evidently no question whatsoever that this woman had been caught in adultery. And so she was facing accusations. She was first of all facing accusations from the very word of God. Did you notice that? When the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus and threw her down, no doubt in the dirt, at his feet, this is what they said. This woman was caught in adultery and this is what Moses said. They literally pulled out the Bible and they threw the Bible at Jesus and said, here is exactly what the Bible says and this woman is not living according to what the Bible says and this woman deserves the punishment that the Bible exacts upon her. Folks, I got to tell you, before we run too hard into this woman's rescue, let's just stop for a minute and just call this what it is. What this woman was doing was absolutely sin against God. Adultery was, is, and always will be a sin against God. Somebody better say amen right now. Y'all kind of looking at me as if nobody's ever taught you the Bible before, but the Bible's pretty plain about this. This is not like some hidden gem down like six feet deep uh, under the ground somewhere as if it's not that hard to see. It's all over the place. And I, I know why we react like this in church, why, why it's so plain in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's so plain in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and repeated in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus goes so far to say in the New Testament, it's not just physical adultery. If a man even looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus actually takes it even further than you and I would like to admit that it goes. Jesus reinforces teaching against adultery in Matthew chapter 19. And lest you go throw the legalist card on me this morning, let me be clear about one thing. 
If Jesus Christ repeats a commandment in the New Testament that was revealed in the Old Testament, that is a commandment that is still binding upon people and his people even today. Don't be tripped up by that. People say, well, Jesus doesn't really care how I live. No, Jesus filled the New Testament with a whole lot of things that he expects his people to live. And one of those is God's people are not to be committing adultery. Somebody help me up here. Look, and here's the sad thing. The reason why we have such a tough time swallowing this is because Hollywood and the media has so glamorized sexual activity that we have normalized sexual activity and sad to say even some people that call themselves believers have normalized sexual activity as well outside the bounds of marriage. Listen very carefully just in case I'm not misquoted it is a sin against God and and these Pharisees are bloodthirsty the thing about the Pharisees here is not that they were wrong it's not that what she did was okay We'll find out later what the real problem was. But here's the real problem with the Pharisees. It wasn't just that the law condemned her. If the law condemned her, that's one thing. But when the law condemns somebody, the response of the church and the response of God's people is not to jump in and condemn them. It's to try to lend a hand and rescue them. And that's what happens. See, the problem is this. Yeah, the law condemned her actions. But what made actions this matter even worse is that the religious people condemned this woman as well. I mean, verse 3, watch, let's look at verse 3 again. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and sat her in the midst of what he was doing. We know Jesus is teaching at this point. Now, now notice what verse 3 doesn't say. Verse 3 does not say the Pharisees started a ministry to help people understand why adultery is bad and to offer them an opportunity to for, be forgiven and a, a helping hand of, of how to have meaningful relationships and how to restore that which is broken. They evidently didn't offer counsel and assistance to the woman. They didn't try to assist her anyway. No, no, they, they brought her in public and shamed her and threw her at the feet of Jesus. This woman was an absolute train wreck. Her life was filled with brokenness. She was ashamed of herself, no doubt. She's a moral disaster. She knows it. And frankly, she didn't necessarily need someone else to point it out. <laughs> but while there was much shame in this woman's life, there was much more shame in the Pharisees' reaction. These Pharisees are noted chiefly for their strict adherence to Mosaic law and oral traditions and this is coupled or tethered with a completely judgmental, hypocritical, and arrogant attitude toward those who were not living up to their standards. Hey, be very careful here. There is a place that we all have in respect to God and how God exercises judgment, etc. But let me be clear about one thing. You are not the judge, jury, and executioner of all things. That job belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and to him alone. And what's happened in our churches, our churches have become more museums for Christians and, and museums for all things that are whole and wholesome and put together. And we, we think that Sunday is for us coming together and putting on display our Christianity. i got to tell you, friend, this is not a museum. It should look more like a hospital than a museum. And, and, and when a church, or a Christian for that matter begin to turn their gracious hands of mercy into stone-holding hands of judgment, churches have a problem. 
These people were absolutely brutal. They were absolutely hypocritical. They were completely devoid of mercy and reality. They shamed her publicly. It is likely, as you read this text, that they may have even set her up. I mean, after all, as has commonly been asked to this text, where's the man that was involved with the woman in the first place? Where was he? Maybe he was a setup. By the way, if it was wrong for her, it was wrong for him. Would you not agree with that? But that's not what this was about. We learn, if you will, when it says they asked him to see, verse 6, to test him to see what he would do. This story had nothing to do with the woman. It had nothing to do with adultery. And it, watch this. In a brutal way, these Pharisees were willing to use this woman in order to trap Jesus. Meaning, they could care less about her. And that's the real problem. The real problem is they tried to use her to destroy Jesus. She was a pawn. She was disposable. And look, folks, when we start viewing people as pawns and disposable as means to get our way or to prove our point, folks, that is the most unlike Jesus thing a person could probably ever do. This is a sad statement of the way that oftentimes Christians act. Those who are hurting and faltering need the strong arm of God to hold them up, but the church has to provide those arms. I was looking back at seeing Mona back there. I remember one, one day a, a lady walked into the church, and I think she had grown up here. I can't remember the exact story, but I just remember that she had gotten in some trouble and it had been years since she had been here. And I think Mona... Uh, went to the ladies' room before church one day, and there this girl was in here crying. And uh, Mona asked her what was wrong, and she told her what was wrong, and she had gotten in some trouble, and she was now uh, going to have a baby. And, and I just remember the response of Mona in that moment was the response, I think, of Jesus in that moment. And that is, honey, it's okay. We're here for you. We will love you. You're welcome here. That's the response of Jesus to people who sin. Otherwise, we are a room full of hypocrites. Kerry Newhoff wrote in a book, Five Ways Judgmental Christians Are Killing Your Church. He said it like this. The problem in many cases is not that unchurched people don't know any Christians. The problem is they actually do and they don't like us. And they've got reasons not to like us. When you have a judgmental Christian, what do you actually have? Well, first of all, you have somebody that's void of love. You have somebody that's void of help. You have somebody that's void of humility. Come on. You have somebody that's void of prayer. You've got somebody that's void of evangelism. Listen, if you love people, you won't judge them. If you help people, you're not judging them. Come on. If you're humble, you won't judge them. If you pray for them, you're not judging them. If you try to reach them, you're not judging them. I would like to say to you, it sounds like love, help, humility, prayer, and evangelism are better words to describe a church than judge. The accusation she faced. Number two, the answer she found. The answer she found, of course, is in the Lord Jesus. They throw this woman down to her in verses 1 through 6. Then Jesus is going to begin to address the situation, beginning in verse 6, all the way down through verse number 11. And I, I say that Jesus, first of all, spoke to this crowd with incredible wisdom. Verse number 6, I love this. 
This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, I love that, as though he did not hear. He is going to speak with wisdom, watch this, without saying a word. The fact is, as he stoops down to write on the ground, we're not told what he writes. You ever tried to figure that out? I love it. I love all the people that have all the things that Jesus wrote on the ground. Let me just save you some time. We have no earthly idea what Jesus wrote on the ground. You want to know why we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground? Because the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote on the ground. And I love all the articles. I could have saved you a million hours and minutes and time spent on the internet trying to figure out. I have no earthly idea what he wrote. He may have just doodled like a kindergartner so disgusted with what he just heard. He kneels down and writes. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, it says this. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, He that is without sin, cast the first stone. According to Deuteronomy 17, the witness with two or three witnesses is the one that's to execute the judgment. So Jesus starts now playing their game a little bit. Here's what the Bible says. So what are you going to do about it? So Jesus then stands up and goes, okay, whichever one of you. Uh, is the accuser, whichever one of you is the witness, go ahead and cast the first stone. Then he turns around, verse 8 again, and writes on the ground, not saying anything else. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest one to the last. What a brilliant thing for Jesus to do. Jesus turns around and tells these men... That essentially what is going on here is not the problem, is not the woman and what she did. He's going to deal with that in just a minute, and don't miss that. The problem that he's dealing with first is that these men had no grounds and were not in a position to execute the judgment that they seemed to so quickly want to execute. So he says to them, whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. He showed them, watch this, he showed them that they were not fit to execute the law. They were so passionate about upholding. Isn't that amazing? He showed them that judgment belongs to the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Does John 8, 7 through 9 set aside the need for biblical discernment or church discipline? I think the answer to that question is absolutely not. In fact, in verse 11, Jesus himself calls what she did a sin. Doesn't he say, go your way and sin no more? Doesn't the Bible absolutely encourage us when necessary to deal in discernment and sometimes in discipline with people that are not living their lives according to the word of God? There's nothing wrong with discipline. There's nothing wrong with discernment. There's nothing wrong with calling out sins for what they are. The real problem that Jesus is dealing with is not, is it okay to have discernment? It's not, is it okay to bring about church discipline? He's dealing with what we would call hypocritical judgment. He's dealing with what Matthew 7 verse 1 says. That is, judge not that you be not judged. People, you got to read your Bibles, okay? God clearly tells us to judge, and then he clearly tells us not to judge. It's not like we're schizophrenic here and we don't know what to do. The point is you have to have discernment. You have to be right. You have to be pure. You have to be uh, uh, upholding what God would have us to do. But at the same time, 
You should not have a judgmentalistic attitude toward others. A censorious, critical spirit. Somebody who's a fault finder, who has a harsh attitude toward people. Uh, positively stated what he's urging and what he demonstrated is a gracious, forgiving disposition that we should have toward people. That's wisdom. The second thing he did was he ministered to people with love. Specifically this woman. Look if you will at verse number 10. I love this. When Jesus had raised himself up from the ground and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Look at this. She said, no one, Lord. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about this. In this chapter, this chapter is filled with people who are judging who are in no position to judge. And now the only person in the scene who is in the position to judge does not judge. Now you may be asking yourself the question, how is this reconcilable? How in the world can a God that loves uphold the justice that the law demands? And the answer is that's only found in the Lord Jesus and only found in what he did for us at the cross. Are you following me this morning? The only way to reconcile that full, come on, full justice is upheld and full love is administered, come on, in the same person at the same time to the same sinners is looking at what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Because at the cross, the full measure of the judgment of sin by God against the world was absolutely, come on, absolutely fully and completely administered, yet it was administered on the Son of God in our place as an act of divine and ultimate and eternal love. How can God say, go your way and sin no more? I do not condemn you. The answer is, look at the cross. Mercy there was grace and grace was free. Pardon was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. He ministered in love. Finally he offered her hope. I love this. This is great. Verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Watch this. Go and sin no more. Jesus addressed her past and Jesus addressed her future. Jesus says, I've forgiven what you've done, and now I'm urging you with an opportunity to do that no more. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't leave you in the gutter he found you in? Someone said these beautiful words, I wish that there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again. Where all our mistakes and all our heartaches could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never again be worn. There is a place. There is a place where you can drop off your old shabby garments. There is a place where you can leave them behind to find them no more and pick them up more. That is in Christ. The answer is forgiveness. The answer is in grace. The answer is mercy. And it's so bizarre to us sometimes. In July of 2007, President uh, George W. Bush granted a pardon to Lewis Libby, sparing him from a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence term in what was a CIA leak case. 
He was the former, Libby was the former chief of staff to Vice President Dick Cheney. He was convicted of lying to authorities and obstructing the investigation into an identity leak of a CIA operative by the name of Valerie Plain. And while there was still the $250,000 fine in place, it was still a very controversial act. U.S. presidents each year receive about 600 petitions for forgiveness. But because of much of the political fallout, they usually wait to their last moments in office to execute presidential pardons. Listen to this statement. Pardons and forgiveness are not very popular. Handing out Justice seems to be more of what people like. That's our nature. That's our nature. I don't know how to always navigate the tightrope of grace and truth. You'll probably fall on one side more than the other. Only through the Lord Jesus can you do it right and do it well. And may God help us. May this place always be a house of mercy, not a house of judgment. Finally, you see the announcement that Jesus made in verse 12. Based on this story, this woman who has lived in darkness, plagued by darkness, has now been forgiven of Christ. Now Christ is going to turn around, verse 12, and he's going to make an announcement. The announcement is very simple, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Jesus gives another, if we were studying the gospel of John fully as its own unit, which I have done before, you would learn that the gospel of John is built around seven miracles and seven statements that begin with that phrase, I am. This phrase is uh, intentional. Uh, for instance, in John 8, uh, he says later on, he's going to say, before Abraham was what? I am. Now, grammatically speaking, he should have said, I was. But he wasn't doing grammar here. He was doing theology here. Before Abraham was, I am. I am, back to Exodus 3, is a statement of the self-existence of God. The eternality of God. That God does not need anybody else to exist. Come on. That God has no beginning. Come on. God has no ending. God has no predecessors. God has no successors. He is the great I am. And then throughout the Gospel of John, he's going to attach the statement I am to something very significant like I am the resurrection and the life. Or I am the good shepherd, etc. Here, based on this amazingly dark encounter with this woman, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the one that can bring light to even a situation as ugly as this one. And he is the light of the world. While it is a particularly true statement in this text, it is also a theological reality that there is only one light of the world. Friend, you may be asking yourself the question this morning, why is all this darkness here? Why all the bad news on Fox News? And the answer is, it's because men love darkness rather than light. 
And what they need is the light of the world. John MacArthur said it like this, our world is a diverse mixture of ethnic groups, cultures, languages, religions, and political systems. Yet, despite all these distinctions, there are really only two types of people in the world. There are believers and unbelievers. There are redeemed and unredeemed. There are saved and lost. Those in the kingdom of God and those in the kingdom of darkness. There are those who are of Adam and those who are of Christ. There are those who love God. There are those who hate God. There are those who are going to eternal life and those who are going to eternal punishment. There are those who inherit the kingdom of heaven and those who die and are separated from Christ in a place called hell. Two choices here. You either are following the light of the world or you're not. You either have Christ or you don't. It's that simple. Do you. I think it's interesting we're reading through 1 John here. I hope you were following that, listening to the words that were being read this morning. You want to know a summary of John chapter 1 John 1 through 5? If you know Christ, you will follow Christ. And you will follow him particularly in light and in love. And if you do not follow in light and in love, chances are... You don't know the God of light and love. And this is exactly what happens with the Pharisees. I mean, look at verse 13. This is amazing. After everything that's been said and done, look at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Here they go again. No, nothing really to say other than you're wrong. This continual and outright rejection of Christ it's exactly what the majority of the world does, regardless of the testimony of the Bible, regardless of the integrity and honesty with history, regardless of the clear distinction between Christianity and all other religions, which is simply one is faith, all others are works. People still blur the lines and try to act as if Christ is not the only way. Folks, you got to brace yourself in a pluralistic culture that this is not very popular. I'm thinking back to a presidential campaign I, just a few years ago when Mitt Romney and Robert Jeffries uh, were in this debate of such, which is when Robert Jeffries, I believe this was when he was asked by President Trump to give the dedicatory prayer for the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. This is amazing. Mitt Romney comes out attacking Robert Jeffries and says, I quote, Robert Jeffrey says you cannot be saved by being a Jew and that Mormonism is a heresy straight out of the pit of hell. He said the same thing about Islam. Such a religious bigot should not be given the prayer that opens the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. That's what the world thinks about people that actually believe Jesus is the only way. I love the response of Robert Jeffries to all this. This is great. He says, historical Christianity has taught for 2,000 years that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That fact... Excuse me, the fact that I, along with millions of evangelical Christians around the world, espouse this belief is neither bigoted or newsworthy. How about this? Believe what you believe. Be okay with what you believe. And expect that not everybody's going to like what you believe and that not everybody's going to follow what you believe. But here we stand this morning to say, in fact, Jesus is the light of the world. 
He is the door of the sheep. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the only way to heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray.